Hi, this is Richard Watts, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the arts. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. My first guest has joined me in the studio to talk about a new production at Malthouse Theatre, co-commissioned by Rising, Melbourne's Winter Arts Festival. Jason Tamiru is the co-director of the work, also performs in it, playing uh, Yidike clapsticks and traditional vocals, uh, and is also the custodial, the cultural custodian of the production. The return... Jason, this is a work which explores in detail some pretty dark and, frankly, fairly gross aspects of colonial culture in Australia. The the stealing of bodies to use human bodies for medical research and as trophies in museums around the world. Uh, for you, as a, a Yorta Yorta man, this is clearly a deeply personal work. Talk to us a little bit about how your involvement with this production began, because I know you've been talking about it for years. Yeah, hi, hi Richard, and hi, Triple R listeners. Hope everyone's well. It's freezing cold, so it's, it's good to be be with you, Richard. Um, yeah, <clears throat> this story, I think it's it goes to the heart and soul of this country, and um, I think it's a story for all of us, uh, not just for us here in this country, but for um, the whole world, because um, there's a long history here in this country, um, not only goes back 200 years, but it goes back to um, tens of thousands of years. And I come from that culture, who's um, the oldest culture in the world, and that's something that we're all very proud of and hope the whole world is proud, proud of also. And I guess <clears throat> back in the early days of um, colonisation, um, this country was pretty brutal when it comes to uh, my mob. Um, We've seen opportunity um, for for our land and um, start a new human being, I guess, a new place to call home. And they sort of, we were sort of in the way, and um, and they sort of pushed us away a bit. And I guess what this story is about, um, it's about what happened at our grave sites and um, the horrific story that happened there and. That was uh, when people come here, they seen our mob as the oldest culture in the world, but the missing link to start a time, you know. And um, they were fascinated by us, and um, they seen uh, my people um, not to have a future in this new world that they were making. So they wanted to study us before we were gone. And also study us, the ones that are buried. So um, we didn't have any laws protecting. We weren't seen as humans back then, which is outrageous. So um, evil people came in and um, disturbed and dug up our families from our um, sacred sites right across the country. And our people were um, traded and sold to the highest bidder um, here in Australia and all around the world and that has had a, a big impact on our people 
because um, not only the distress that has caused us, not only to to the people, but also to the land. But also, um, what those what they did was determine what our identity was, and that I, I think everybody's got a right to determine their own <clears throat> their own identity. You know, <clears throat> but that wasn't given to my people. Um, these crackpot scientists, they're the ones that labelled us and and determined who we were. And <clears throat> and that came about from those grave robbers, you know, and what this story is about is is about shining a light on um, this horrific history <clears throat> that happened in the past, but it's going still going on, it's connecting this till today because we've got... Um, hundreds upon thousands of our ancestors scattered across the world. Um, you know, I don't want to, want to be too graphic to your listeners, but, you know, there's, there's no other way of expressing it, you know. You know, we've got people's feet in one, in one country and <clears throat> hands in another, you know, legs here and skulls at other places. So, you know, um, we've got our bones right across the world. And in our story, in our culture, um, it's important that, um, like a lot of cultures, that um, we get buried back on country because um, um, our country is our home and that's our, I guess, our dreaming and also like our heaven. So um, as Indigenous people, we hear the cries of all those ones that are taken away and um, we work really hard um, with these institutions, some good, some bad, to um, get our family back home. Now, that notion of repatriation is something that I know you've been personally involved with in the past, Jason. So clearly this is a deeply personal production for you on a number of levels, not mm. just because I think anybody listening would have this, I would hope, would have the same kind of experience, the same empathy of going, how would I rest easy knowing that the the bodies of my ancestors have uh, are on display in trophy cabinets in some, on the other side of the world? That itself is is a confronting and painful kind of idea to consider. You've had first-hand experience of helping return people's remains to country. Yeah, that's that's right, and it's it's a... That, that experience that, that I, uh, I've had has changed my life and it's still with, within me today. And I used to get, uh, and I still do, I guess, affected by it because it's, you know, it's pretty confronting thing, something, it's really confronting to do this, you know. Um, I guess people go to school and universities to learn about um, medicine and so forth and, you know, myself, some, someone like me and others, we haven't been trained that way. And to actually start handling bones and, you know, you get a skull here, a leg there and feet here and so on. Now, you can just see the vision to your, uh, the listeners out there and they all come in boxes and what happens is you bring them back to country and we've got to physically take these bones out of these boxes with our, with our hands, you know, and sort of... Um, put them in, into a, a grave site and, and make up a body that's something that looks like a body, you know? And um, 
and then we have a rebury them and, and do a ceremony. But that type of business, it's something that I've, has lived me forever and it's something that I, I tell everyone is is um, our old people, those ancestors, um, they've been locked in cabinets and or put on plinths on display and they've been handled by some cold people and um, sometimes foreign people too and and something that I do and um, I'm not sure what others do but um, when handling our people, our ancestors, I, I use my hands without any gloves and that brings a connection only f- not only from um, myself but to, to the... Um, the person who we're reburying and that feeling, that touch, it's something that um, really connects you to the story because some of the some of the research that's done, some small, some a lot, it connects you to even stronger to the person that you're burying and in doing this repatriation and connecting really strongly to their ancestor, you're sort of taken back in time to to that time to when that person got snatched and um that's uh and even beyond and then you you think about some of these people are two three hundred four hundred years old even more then you realize that they haven't even seen white people you know so they're handling they come back with us and they're back with their own mob and you know you realize that you know they've been in these foreign institutions, and it would have been really confusing for them. So when we bring her back, we um, do our ceremony and language, and um, all the local people they're in attendance of the reburial, and even even the um, people who, institutions who are part of um, who kept um, our ancestors, they come along also. They we invite them, we invite them to our ceremony just to um, show them what it's all about, but also bring them peace. Because it's, it's something, Richard, that I, I learnt really strongly and I've seen, and um, I had the opportunity to travel the world um, in dealing with this type of repatriation business. The whole world is wanting to ch- um, turn the page. Um, sometimes we're, we're caught in policy and legislation and laws of yesterday, which is restrictive, and it holds us back to the dark ages. But um, there are a lot of people, um, and still some people are stuck in the dark ages, no doubt about it. However, there's a lot of good people out there that are wanting to turn the page in history. And people now are aware, are learning, that in this country there's a long history of my people here. And we're human. You know, and um, these institutions, thankfully, they want to talk to us and they're willing to hand hand back our loved ones. And this has been, um, it's a real beautiful thing to see and happen. And it's something that I believe in is what repatriation is all about. Repatriation is is quite a, it's, if they talk about reconciliation, repatriation, everything, it's, it's something quite beautiful because it it brings a lot of peace, not only to the ancestors that are getting buried, but to everyone that's been involved 
in this um um the snatching of this um human remain the the idea of repatriation is then explored it it is at the heart in many ways of the return the new malthouse production uh, which you've co-directed both for you as as an artist and mm. for the the people who come to see the play what what purpose do you hope it will serve will it be uh an opportunity for empathy and understanding from some people will it be an opportunity for healing for other people and is it hard for you to work on it it feels like just hearing the emotion in your voice today jason it feels like this would be a difficult piece of theater to work on but an important piece of theater yeah it's it's difficult but being black is difficult man <laughs> you know it's a tough country and um, it's really hard and you know we're trying to bring back the pieces together and you know, any opportunity, I'm thankful to be here on radio. Um, I'm thankful at Malthouse Theatre to have a platform and um, to be able to tell the truth. You know, the opportunity to tell the truth, um, tell a story. And, and is it difficult? Yeah, of course it is. But life is difficult, you know. And, and um, I guess what I'm hoping people to get when they come to the, a show like this is start the conversation. Everyone's going to have a different response to it, you know. We, we opened last night and we've had a few previews and everyone I spoke to had similar but different different responses to it because uh, they, they, you know, connect themselves to the story in some particular way, black, white and everywhere else, you know. Some people say sorry and some people say thank you and some people are a lot of tears, um, some happiness. But you can see there's also a lot of peace. So what I hope people to get out of it is, is um, firstly, I want, I'd like everyone to come and see it. It's one of those plays that everyone's got to see. And, of course, I've got a bit of conflict there because I'm co-director. But but talking to a vast amount of people, everyone said this is a story that everyone needs to see and, and be heard. So what I hope people to get out of it is um, a better understanding of the history of this country have a bit of understanding of who we are as blackfellas in this country and have a bit of understanding on who they are in this country too. The Return is now on at Malthouse Theatre, co-commissioned by Rising. It's running through until the 4th of June. Uh, the Malthouse located at 113 Sturt Street, South Bank, if you've not been there before. For more information about the production, go to www.malthousetheatre.com. .au and book tickets for The Return. I've been chatting with its co-director, Jason Tamaru, who's also performing in the work. Uh, Jason, thank you so much for coming in. Such a pleasure, Richard, and um, thank you very much, mate. Triple R. Time for us to talk visual art on the program now. I'm sure if you're familiar with art history, then you'll know some of the major art movements of the the 18th, 19th, 20th centuries, for example. But are you familiar with tonalists? If you're not, well, you might want to listen carefully to the following conversation. I'm joined on the line by Louise Teggett, who's the director of the Art Gallery of Ballarat, one of the great regional galleries of Australia. And Louise joins us to talk about the new exhibition, Light and Shade, Max Meldrum and His Followers. Louise, who was Max Meldrum and what is this tonalist movement that he created? 
Good morning, Richard. Um, look, Max Meldrum, um, a really, really interesting character. Um, he was a Scot um, who came out to Australia and he really formulated um, the first school of art in the country that had its own clearly defined theoretical uh, structure. So he um, attended the National Gallery School. So at the at the you know early 20th century, if we we think about the types of work that were being produced at that time, it's a Frederick McCubbin, Arthur Streeton, grand narrative paintings or very large landscapes. And this upstart Scott came in um, saying, you know, actually there's a, there's a very different way of um, making art. Um, and his, his whole theory was based around um, that the light and shade or the tones of a painting was the most important component. Um, so colour was the lowest... Uh, thing on his um, priority. It was about the light and shade. So um, Max Meldrum trained at the National Gallery School in Melbourne. Um, so he came out of a, a very sort of theoretical um, training at that time, which was based on um, drawing and, um, you know, doing lots of studies for a painting before you, you complete your painting. And he came in with this idea that no, you don't need to. You don't need to do a preparatory drawing. You don't need to to do a drawing. You just need to get the the, the tones of a painting onto the canvas. So he um, really annoyed the um, the kind of the national gal the teachers at the National Gallery School because he was promoting um, a different way of working to what they were they were doing, and he also annoyed them because he took a whole lot of their students and set up his own uh, painting school. There seems to be a bit of a history uh, of, I don't know, brash newcomers uh, coming in and shocking and confronting and frustrating the, the status quo and the established artists of the day who were radical in their youth but then had kind of solidified and settled into they become the establishment. Did... Uh, Max Meldrum and his followers ever have a chance to do the same? Did they become establishment figures themselves or was their movement perhaps too too small to have a major effect on Australian art history? Look, they've, I mean, we, I suppose a lot of people know um, the work of Clarice Beckett, um, who's probably his best-known student. Um, she's really been... Um, championed in in recent years, but um, I suppose what we're trying to show through the exhibition Light and Shade is there was a large number of other students that um, either were very strong in the tonalist movement in the 1920s and 30s, and some of them uh, continued to paint that way through their entire career. There's, so he was... Um, had such a sort of a, a strength of personality that um, people either absolutely adored Meldrum or hated him. So he had some um, students that were just absolute disciples. Um, and then he also had other students that, you know, worked in the tonalist style for a, a number of years but then went on to, um, you know, work more in, say, the modernist style. So as artists like Jock Freighter and Arnold Shaw really changed... Their, their style, but um, you know, it, it's it's this incredible um, plethora of artworks and students, and it's it's been overlooked in the history of Australian art, and it's and it's 
you know, because of this um, rebellious nature and challenging the status quo, um, you, you read articles, you read art in Australia from the time, and these artists are being um, championed and revered, but they've sort of been written out of the, the um, documented art history. So this is an opportunity to, to balance the books, as it were, by presenting their work and, and, and the opportunity also to then present a body of works by these artists so you can see how they compare to one another, identify common themes and so forth. Now, the tone is clearly a common theme, the, the, the somewhat muted palette, another, and what's been described, I understand, as a, a certain mistiness to their work, which is literally uh, represented in one of the Clarice Beckett works in the exhibition, Misty Evening Beaumont. Morris. Absolutely, and I think that's um, you know the, the mistiness or the um, the sort of fuzziness. I think at the time, um, one critic described it as as though the works have been painted with cotton wool. Um, it comes from the fact that there are no um, no li- no lines. There's no definition of, of drawing in the work, so the edges of of um, the subject start to, to fade into one another. Um, you know, that Meldrum had this um, very funny way of, of teaching his students. Um, so he would uh, teach them with very, very low light um, or they would have to wear sunglasses. And he would say things like, there's no, there's no hard lines in nature, so there's no, no lines allowed in, in your paintings. So within the show, um, it's, it's hung thematically and it's really around the types um, of works that he encouraged his students to do. So still life was a very key part of their training, um, as well as um, landscape sort of out out in the on plain air, so out outside, and and no um, preparatory sketches that they then go back into the studio. It was done on the spot, so it's a um, you know for us it's a really great opportunity to showcase the Art Gallery Ballarat collection, where the largest and oldest regional gallery in Australia. We've got a collection of over eleven and a half thousand artworks, and we we love to do exhibitions that um, bring out part of the collection that might not have been seen for a long time and it also gives us an opportunity to acquire new works. So within this exhibition are um, about eight new works that we've acquired over the last couple of years in anticipation of this show and really wanting to highlight some of these forgotten artists. I'm automatically intrigued whenever I hear about forgotten artists I'm like okay I need to learn more I want to see these works but I'm also fascinated by the idea of the controversy in the day you would think that because this is a body of artists who were as you say they they were painting uh in plein air and which is a, a tradition that they would have inherited from the the Heidelberg school, but they've moved away so clearly from the kind of grand narrative paintings of the Heidelberg school that they. It, I can see why it may have come as an affront to to some of the the more established artists of the day. And again, as you say, the lack of clear and distinct lines instead of these carefully sketched and then created narrative images in with so much bold colour and definitive uh, representation. You have these... They must have seemed kind of bland or, or as you say, blurred uh, to the, the, the critics and some of the established artists of the day. So it's a, it's a fascinating response in some ways to uh, the more established art history of the period. 
Absolutely. And the, I mean, the other really interesting thing is the, the subject matter. So um, they weren't just going out into the bush and painting, uh, you know, beautiful bush landscapes as the Heidelberg artists have. They were, they're painting, you know, uh, cars and roads and city streets. So things that had not really been subject matter in Australian art up to that point. And people sort of regarded that as, why, why would you paint a why would you paint a painting of a of a road? But you know, to us now, they're really they're sort of very contemporary works. It really does, and again, this is one of the things about the, I guess, the advent of modernism is the pushback that you get from it. Uh, works which today strike us as quintessentially modernist and of their period, showing streetscapes, showing roads, showing daily life in a city, were were radical in their time. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Now, in terms of the exhibition itself, you mentioned that it's... Is it entirely comprised of paintings from the collection of Art Gallery of Ballarat or have you borrowed a couple of major pieces from interstate or private collections? Uh, so there's uh, 50 works in the exhibition and there's four works that we've borrowed from private collections in Ballarat. So um, the strength of our collection uh, really shines. Um, we've just borrowed a couple of works by artists that we didn't have in our collection. Um, I mean, one of the really interesting things for me working on this show has been the connections with Ballarat itself. So um, Max Meldrum visited Ballarat um, a, a number of times, gave lectures here to the ladies' art group, um, public lectures. He painted a number of works of the Ballarat Botanical Gardens. Unfortunately, we don't have one of those in our collection. I'm looking looking to find one of those. Um, but also there's a number of artists within the exhibition who lived in Ballarat and studied with Meldrum. So they used to catch the train down and, and attend his school. So there's there's a really local connection which is which is really fantastic. The exhibition is called Light and Shade, Max Meldrum and His Followers. Uh, it's on at the Art Gallery of, of Ballarat, located at 40 Lydiard Street North in Ballarat from the 21st of May until the 15th of October. And you can go to artgalleryofballarat.com.au. Louise, it really sounds like something that uh, Melbournians, including myself, I might have to jump on a train and come up and see it once it's opened. Please do. Um, you know, Ballarat's a, a lovely place in winter. I look forward to visiting and checking it out. The exhibition, as we said, Light and Shade, Max Meldrum and his followers, on from the 21st of May until the 15th of October at Art Gallery of Ballarat. Uh, go to artgalleryofballarat.com.au for all the exhibition details. Louise, thanks so much for speaking to us this morning. Thanks, Richard. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. I'm joined in the studio by my next guests, John Mark Desengano and Emily Tomlins, are not only two of my favourite actors in Melbourne, but they are performing in The View From Up Here at Theatre Works, which is a new production that's... There's a lot to unpack and unpick. Now, normally when I get guests in the studio, we talk about the show itself. We're going to do that, but we're also going to talk about some of the environmental rationale behind the making of the show, Great. which is also really interesting. But first of all... Hello and welcome. Hello, Richard. Hi, Thanks Richard. for having us. Emily's also one of my favourite actors. So, <laughs> you um. too, James. <laughs> uh, it's a mutual appreciation society here at Triple R right now. But um, 
And let's start with you. Tell yeah. us a little bit about the the view from up here. Uh, it's a beautiful play. Mm. Um, I'm not biased. Um, it uh, we've actually it's been in development for over five years, um, and it is written by Fiona Spitzkowski, uh, and it's a beautiful – I mean, it's set uh, in the kind of rubble of a family home um, after the, the fires in 2020, um, but it's it's basically about familial relationships. So it's a mother and her two daughters. One of them has gone through the, the fire and the destruction of the family home with her, and the other one has come into the aftermath and brought her friend John, yeah. played by – John Mark. Um, so it's, yeah, I mean, it's it's set in that context. And so there is a lot around, uh, you know, sustainability, um, our environment, moving forward, how we do that, mm. what what's right to rebuild and what's not. Um, yeah. But also uh, about how this family who have been apart for a long time for various reasons try to kind of come back together and how they need each other. Um and it's beautifully written. Mm. Yeah. And John Mark, with your character as an outsider in mm. some ways, but an outsider can also then be a catalyst for, for change or, or, or trigger kind mm. of uh, particular dynamics in a family, particularly one where I would imagine from what Emma has just described, that the fact that there will be um, kind of uh, survivor anger versus the guilt of I wasn't there, I didn't go through it, why weren't you here, yeah. why didn't you help us? And But then all the other family tensions bubbling away beneath the surface that perhaps are the reason why one of the sisters was not present when the fire took place. Yeah, yeah. I, um, yeah, John's, a, a, John's journey is a really interesting one, I think. Um, and you're right, it, it, it's he's this... Vehicle for being an outsider, uh, being in it, and it's really like to sit in that, to to watch the tension and to to really sit in there as someone who's trying to make themselves small but be present um, to hold them is, is... It's really interesting and it's it's, it's quite exciting to play. Uh, Yeah, for me, I, I... in rehearsals, throughout rehearsals, and now uh, in previews last night, it it's that feeling of, um, and I've said it a few times to to friends. You know, when you were a, a young or like a teenager, and then your best friend's parents picked you up uh, to take you somewhere, maybe a slumber party or something like that, and then you'd be in the car with them, and then their parents would start arguing, <laughs> and that you know you're not supposed to be there listening to this, but there's nowhere to go. That's John for pretty much the whole, the whole thing. Show, yeah. yeah. He's an interesting witness. It, um, we were having this discussion yesterday, actually. Our, our director, the amazing Julian Dibley-Hall, mm. um, brought up in notes the this idea of being witnessed, like having your your trauma or what you're going through being witnessed by someone who is a stranger. Not not to Lily, obviously, mm. one of the daughters. She's she's the one who's brought him 
to the family home. But, you know, for, for Maggie and Ava, so Ava um, played by Chanel and McCree and Maggie, who is my character, to, to have someone completely new there, um, you know, Maggie actually says a line to Lily, I'm surprised you brought someone for this. Mm. I thought you'd come alone for this because it's, it's, you know, they're, they're in the middle of this massive thing that's happened to them. They're, Maggie is literally sorting through you know, the debris to see if there's anything that can be saved. And John's just there kind of <laughs> watching this all happen. Yeah. Plus there's all this tension because the two sisters haven't seen each other for almost a decade and there's a lot of unresolved issues there. So it is an interesting thing. I think he's a really great kind of lens for the audience. Yes. It's kind of a way in for the audience to kind of go, oh, we're, we're – because – the beautiful thing about this show is it's at theatre works, but it's in the round, um, so it's it's very intimate, mm. and so the audience is all around us. So John is their kind of conduit or their kind of way yeah. in um, the to mirror yeah to, to, well, to yeah. witnessing this you don't really know how to feel, personal thing. If you don't know how to feel while you're watching it, then look at my face. <laughs> and, uh, <that's... laughs> I I love the fact also though though that then the staging is creating that, like, literally embodying that pressure cooker atmosphere That's it. Yeah, that yeah, yeah. the story is it. taking place in. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's, I mean, I, I love theatre in the round. Mm. I, I cut my teeth on um, the round uh, back in Brisbane because I did a lot of shows at La Boite and that was my first professional gig. Um, but I love it because not only, you know, can you kind of see, you get all these different perspectives as an audience member um, and you're, you're not always seeing all of the stuff all of the time, but you're actually seeing through different characters' eyes. But you're also facing each other. So you're mm-hmm. also having to kind of face other audience members and how they're reacting to um, and feeling through the show. And yeah. I love that about it. It's yeah. really and I think, exciting. Um, well, pressure cooker is a really interesting mm. metaphor for what this uh for this show, really, yeah, because it is. It feels like, the, the, yeah, the tension is high all the time, and there's, I mean, you know, we're talking fun. about fires, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> so pressure cook is a good one. Uh, it's also a very timely production, yeah. Given that the 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 bushfire season, uh, that, those really bad fires in which smoke was blanketing our cities, and people were going, oh, climate change isn't just happening in twenty or thirty years' time. This is something I need to think about now. Mm-hmm. So it's a reminder of that process as well, and. In that regard, I wondered, and John Mark, I'll get you to start this, for example, but I'm aware that the the creative team mm-hmm. have created a, an environmental sustainability plan for the production and are asking kind of people essentially to commit to that, to commit to working on the show in a low-carbon way. Yeah. Have you worked on a show that's done this before? Never. Um, no, I, I think I've worked on shows that have been conscious of it um, and have... You know, there were recycling bins everywhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, but this uh, this level of awareness uh, within the practice is is really exciting, actually. Uh, um, so Julian Dibley Hall, uh, Liv Satchel and Christian Taylor um, have come together to make um, sustainable, sustainable Theatres Australia. Um, and uh, the, the, the protocols that put in... Um, make me realise uh, how much I don't think about it or things that I am missing in my in my life. Just in terms of, like, uh, travelling to the show itself um, and just, you know, writing down how we did travel to the show, what what means did we take, makes me really think 
every morning. How am I going to get there? Is there a better way to do this um, or a more effective way for the effective, more, um, yeah, more sustainable way to, to travel. So instead of automatically just jumping into the car. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Then I think about um, taking public transport um, or riding a bicycle, right? Um, yeah. I think about that. It's, uh, there's, they're, they're, they're fantastic in the way that they don't put pressure on us to, to do that. We, we also understand the, the, uh, the, the society at the moment and with everything else that's going on. Um, but it is really helpful having that thought all the time. Yeah. Also part of the plan is uh, the way that they're, uh, that they've built the set, mm. the way costumes have been sourced, the way tape is being used. We use basically no tape in the in the like markup tape in mm -hmm. the rehearsal room, which in, is in itself a, a kind of radical step in it, some ways. It is a massive step. If you've step. been in a yeah. rehearsal room, or kind of even if you go into a production and look on stage and you see the way the stage is marked up, yeah. so mm. that, so to help an order uh, an actor go, that's my mark. I need to hit that. That's kind it, of, and so forth. To to go right, we're not using tape that will then be ripped up and chucked in a bin and end up in landfill at that's the end right. of the show. And really, when you think about it, like you know, you in the past, I don't think. A lot of us have thought about how much that actually kind of the quantity yeah. that you that that you accrue over the, the time because oftentimes you're moving rehearsal rooms, you have to switch, you know, independent theatre, we kind of have to take what we can get. And so you are always ripping this tape up mm. and it's not reusable. And so, but yeah, I mean, they've made a commitment to a, a large percentage of um, the props and all of the materials for the set and uh, all of the costumes are already recycled mm -hmm. and then will be recycled again after the show. So there's very little waste yeah. happening in those terms, which is, is really amazing just to even be kind of, you know, aware of that. And then as John Mark said, with the, with the traveling, I mean, there, Christian Taylor is our, um, a sustainability consultant and this is really his wheelhouse. Mm. And they have kind of made it very clear that carbon offsetting is, is kind of the last port of call that everything else you know, preventative stuff should happen first. But in terms of our travel, then if there is stuff to be offset, then they will contribute uh, money to offsetting mm. uh, through various kind of different avenues after the show is finished. So all of that is being recorded um, by Christian so that they know exactly where we kind of stand after the show. So it's pretty awesome. It's pretty remarkable also that, like, it doesn't feel any different to any other rehearsal room. No, like I don't. No. We don't miss the tape. I didn't miss the tape at all. <laughs> um, yeah, you just put chairs there. It's fine. Yeah, yeah. You can make it work. <laughs> or a bit of Old chalk school. or something like yeah, that. Yeah, exactly yeah, right. Totally. You you yeah, find yeah. other ways to do it that's yeah. um, just better for everyone. But yeah. you just don't miss it. I don't. Yeah. It doesn't feel any different to any other rehearsal room. Mm. Are the environmental themes of the development of uh, the production reflected in the play itself? Yeah, it's it's actually it's quite um it's quite subtle mm. um but pervasive. Um I, I was just talking to John Mark before about like my character Maggie, her kind of whole idea is we're we're moving forward, we need to move forward, we need to move forward, we need to rebuild. Um I'm I'm staying here but we need to rebuild. But yet she's quite kind of stuck in the past about her ideas of what that means. Rebuilding means 
making everything kind of the same but just bigger and better. I mean, she does talk about wanting to put in solar panels and irrigation and a bigger water tank and that kind of stuff. So she is halfway there, but she's also talking about, like, planting things that aren't particularly sustainable for the the earth around her, whereas Ava, her daughter, says maybe we should just let the creek take – everything back and leave here because we're obviously not good for this land, you know. Mm. So that kind of runs like this, you know, a very, very constant but deep kind of heartbeat through the whole show. So it's not it's kind of, it's not knocking people on the head, but it's just yeah. this interesting kind of attitudes that are coming through about what what people understand as sustainability um, and what they're not willing to let go of, mm-hmm. you know, because this is my place, this is my land, this is my legacy, this is my family, and that comes above other things, which I think is a fairly familiar kind of attitude. Mm-hmm. Which yeah. then also sparks drama in the play itself between characters. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's nothing but drama between <laughs> oh, no. characters. <laughs> no, there's beautiful light moments. It's, 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 a, it's a fabulously nuanced play. Yeah, it um, is. Yeah, it, it, I'm constantly finding new things and constantly in awe of this writing. Uh, it, it really is a gift. Yeah. Yeah. The production is called The View From Up Here and it's on at TheatreWorks uh, opening tonight and running through until the 28th of May after a preview last night. Tuesdays to Saturdays at 7.30pm. Tickets, 40 bucks full, 32 concession uh, and 25 for students and you can book by calling TheatreWorks on 9534. Double three double eight. That's nine five three four double three double eight. Or by booking at theatreworks.org.au. Theatreworks located at fourteen Ackland Street, St Kilda, just uh, about two and a half block short stroll from the tram line. If you are indeed travelling by exactly. public transport to get yeah. to the theatre, and, uh, and it's very easy, very easy to do. And if you want to break from the election broadcast for a couple of hours mm-hmm. on Saturday night, you can get two for one tickets, and we'll have a barbecue afterwards. Uh, and watch a television together in the uh, foyer and with, um, with hopefully get some good news. <laughs> fingers hopefully. crossed and uh, otherwise there may be shouting at the television. Absolutely. Yeah. Otherwise well, we'll all hold each other. We'll just uh, hold each other. <laughs> at least we'll be together. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so to book uh, for The View From Up Here and that's a two-for-one ticket offer on Saturday night. Uh, sounds like a uh, bit of a bargain to me. Theatreworks.org.au and if you want more information about Sustainable Theatres Australia, including... The their green guides in mm. which they lay out information for you rather than you having to do all the, the work and research yourself, go to sustainabletheatresaustralia.org. I've been chatting with Emily Tomlins and John Mark Desengano about the view from up here on at TheatreWorks, opening tonight, running through until, he says, looking for that detail 28th. again, the 28th of May. Lovely to have you both in. Thanks, Thanks Richard. Richard. Always a you. pleasure. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the arts, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. <laughs>